0: You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, And then we're going to take uh, some time to reflect on this passage. But first, would you pray with me? Oh Lord, we, uh, your church here in Toronto, now turn our attention to this, the word that you've left for us, the word you've deemed sufficient and good and powerful. And we are coming before you asking with confidence and hope-filled expectation that you would do exactly what you promised, that you would work powerfully through this, your word. Speak so that we can say we've heard from you clearly. And make us into a new people. For the proud, would you use this word to bring them low, that they might be lifted up in Christ. For the downtrodden, discouraged, and depressed, would you use this word to encourage them and fill them with joy. For the scared and fearful, would you use this word to grant to them words of comfort and hope. Speak clearly, Father, through your spirit. We, your church, listen. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, on November 15th, uh, 2013, some of you may remember, uh, in San Francisco, some 16,000 people participated in something extraordinary, something quite special. After months and months of chemotherapy, Miles Scott's lymph- lymphoblastic leukemia finally was in remission, and when the Sim- San Francisco chapter of the Make-A-Wish Foundation asked Miles what he wanted more than anything else, you might remember what he said. He said, I want to be Batman. You might remember, it went quite viral on the internet. He told the Make-A-Wish Foundation that he wanted to be Batman, and they said, great, we'll get you a Batman costume. And as far as Miles Scott understood, he was going to San Francisco to pick up a replica costume, Batman costume, so he could walk around in the costume all day. But rather than just picking up a costume, an unbelievable adventure began to unfold where Miles Scott, as Bat-Kid, had to save San Francisco. The adventure included the Joker, the Penguin, a damsel in distress, the Riddler, the San Francisco Giants mascot, numerous flash mobs, the police department, and even the mayor of San Francisco. U.S. President at the time, Barack Obama, even called to relay a message to the Bat Kid. The wish became the largest and most elaborate uh, stunt ever pulled off by the Make-A-Wish Foundation. It was the largest one and the most costly one they've ever staged and this was in part because as they made known the intentions of this child to be bat kid it went viral on the internet and numerous people from san francisco heard his wish and they said i can take a day off i can take some hours off to make this kid's wish come true and it became an unbelievable unbelievably elaborate stunt they're even making movies about it now the entire city heard the request and they were pleased to give some of their time and resources to fulfill Miles' wish. Well, we've been looking at this prayer of Jesus, often called the High Priestly Prayer in John 17. We've been doing this through the Lenten season. I hope it's been beneficial. And we're at the conclusion, in some ways, the climax of this particular prayer. And in verse 24, Jesus sets out a final petition by stating, uh, Father, I desire. And what he's showing to us is what he is longing for, what he is yearning for. These are his hopes, his desires, what he wants. And what we are going to see is that what he hopes for is for his people. His wish to the Make-A-Wish Foundation, his heart's passion, is to be with his people. And I hope you leave here seeing how he prays and unbelievably encouraged. Because you know what? As he lifts this prayer to the Father... More than, 16, more than the power of 16,000 San Franciscans with their hearts set on fulfilling this wish. The power of the one who made the heavens and the earth hears this final wish before Jesus heads to the cross. And with all the resources that sustain every molecule in our planet and every planet in the cosmos, our Father answers this prayer. He'll stop at nothing to make this wish come true. And this wish is all about you. It's all about his relationship to you, God's people. So here's what I want to look at in this prayer. Jesus is going to offer up this sort of final wish, and he's going to pray to the Father. And he's gonna he's gonna uh, first we're gonna look at the where Jesus wishes we will be, and then second what Jesus wishes we will see. So where he wishes we will be, what he wishes we will see. I pulled off an April Fool's prank on Friday, and the sermon outline rhymes. So this is going to be a good this is going to be a good week. So, first, where does Jesus want us to be? Where does he wish for us to be? We see it in verse 24. It's quite clear. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. What is Jesus' grand wish to the Father before the agony of the cross? He wants to be with his people. Specifically, he wants to be with the people that his Father has given to him as a gift. So what this means this morning is that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, he's praying for two things about you. One, that he would be with you, and he's acknowledging, two, that he sees you as a gift from his Father. Now this is somewhat strange that Jesus prays, I want them to be with me, because he's praying this prayer probably somewhere in the Kidron Valley. His disciples aren't far from him, they're probably near with him. And they probably heard him offer up portions of this prayer. That's how we have a recorded testimony of it. So what is he saying where I want them to be with me, if they're already physically with him? And I think, and you'd have to let your eyes look up in the passage if you have the Bible, in verse 20, Jesus has made clear that he's not just praying for his disciples. He's actually praying for all those who will hear the testimony of his disciples and become followers of him. And so in, in a very real way, this is a prayer about you, He wants not just those disciples that are with him, but all who will come to believe, who the Father has given to him as a gift. He wants them all to be with him. A big family gathering after it feels it's been separated for so long. That is what he's longing for. He wants to be with his people, and he's reflecting on what lies before him. That he's going to go through a mock of a trial. He's going to be crucified and ascend to his throne. And as he's praying, he's catching a vision of it, and he's saying, Father, here's my prayer. Bring them all together with me. Make them all come. This gift you've given to me, bring it to its fullness and have them all come around my throne. Now listen, hear me clearly. It would be one thing, worthy of worship, worthy of all of our eternal reflection, if our Lord Jesus Christ came and said he wanted to provide a way in which he could rescue us from our pain, rescue us from our trouble, set us free from our difficulty. That would be enough For us to devote our entire lives to worshiping him and to be faithful to him, that he devoted his life to rescuing us from sin, setting us free. But he's praying for something even deeper than that. He's not just trying to get you out of debt. He wants to be near you. This is his heartfelt yearning, his earnest prayer. This is his last will and testament in some sense. This is his wish to the Father. He wants to be near you. He wants to be near you. You know why? Because when he sees you, he's reminded that you are, that you were given to him by the Father. You were a gift that the Father set, up, uh, set for before him, a token of his love. You were created as a gift from the Father to be given to Jesus, and he longs for that gift to come in its fullness and to be near all. Maybe I could illustrate this way. Last week I was boarding a plane to uh, go to Calgary, and I got a text that I don't think anyone would ever want to get, which was my wife saying, I lost the diamond in um, my ring. And I could tell by the the panic of the text that she was not in a good space with it. She was quite upset, and I knew it probably wasn't going to be helpful for me to say, go find it. (laughs) So I tried to be an encouraging husband and uh, said, it's going to be okay. It's just a diamond; it's replaceable. In the back of my mind, I'm remembering some people just got engaged recently, and I'm thinking, darn it, I could have got like a two-for-one deal. We could have worked out sale. You know, I'm looking at rings. I bought that thing when I was a young man. I had no idea about conflict diamonds. Now we're going to be paying a lot more because my conscience is more sensitive. But I tried to stay positive to my wife, but she was so upset. I could just sense. She was so upset. I said, it's just a diamond. It's just a diamond. It's going to be okay. But it wasn't just a diamond. You know why? Because what it was for her was a gift. A token of a crazy 19-year-old boy's love for her and commitment to her. It wasn't just a diamond. As she gazed into it, it was so much more than that. It was a gift from her, her husband to her that meant something so much. It was tied to so much uh, love and so many memories. And this diamond must be found. And I knew as we, the plane took off, I said, Lord, just help her to find it because I can't imagine. She'll just neglect the children for the next week and a half. She's, nothing will get done and my kids might die. So for the sake of my children, fi- help her find this diamond. And sure enough, and listen, I prayed for a lot of things. Uh, don't, don't ask me to pray for you about diamonds, but um, I prayed for a lot of sicknesses, and the Lord has seen fit not to answer quickly. But Kim went back to where she dropped off the kids at school, parked in the same spot, opened her door, and the diamond was right on the ground, okay? And I arrived back, at, <laughs> it's a heartwarming story, I know. Um, I landed in Calgary to like a thousand text messages and voicemails saying that the diamond had been found. And when I got home, I got home at about, 1 a.m. from delayed flights, and I was not in a great mood. But who was there? Who was waiting for me? Kim. And what would she want to show me? She wanted to show me the diamond that she had found. She made these commitments that we were going to maintain this ring better, get it tightened in the future, et cetera, et cetera. Now, why do I share this? Listen, Jesus sees you as something of that diamond from the Father. He, He sees you as a token of the Father's love to him. When he looks down upon his church, upon each and every one of you individually and us collectively as a body... He says, this is a token of the Father's commitment and his love towards me. That he has given to me this particular people. He's given it to me me before the foundation of the world. And that is how he sees you. Maybe I could quote the 19th century Scottish minister, Robert Murray McShane. He says it this way. In truth, Christ cannot lack you if you are a believer. You are his jewel. His crown, listen clearly to what McShane says, Robert Murray McShane says here, McShaney. Heaven would be no heaven to him if you were not there. This is where Jesus wants us to be, church. He wants us to be with him. We are like that lost diamond, this token of love from the Father, and he wants to be with it. He wants to have it. All the memories that are tied up with it all the hope that belongs to it. When he looks down and sees the church, you are that diamond. Heaven would be no heaven without him. I think McShaney is correct. Let me make some applications here. Some of you feel like you're living pathetic and uninteresting, boring lives. And you're turning to self-help books and life coaches to try to make life feel meaningful and exciting again. Maybe to feel the flame of purpose well up again. Hear the word of God. You are a precious gift from the Father to his Son. This isn't my words. I'm not trying to inflate your ego. This is how Jesus prays here. You are a precious gift from the Father to his Son, and he wants to be with you. No matter how damaged you might feel your life is, no matter how worthless you may feel you are, that is not how he sees you. And you cannot, cannot, cannot live as though you were anything less than that. You might feel meaningless, small, useless, and boring. Jesus says, I want you with me. You are a gift to me. So Jesus wants us to be with him. This is where he wants us to be, but now let's ask, what does he want us to see? And this is going to get a little bit heavy, but I think we can go there, and I think it's worth it. I promise not every week I'll try to go go this far into uh, uh, such a small topic. But Jesus prays this in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, and here's what he wants us to see, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Now, in some senses, verse 25 and 26 are kind of, they're going to build off of this sight of glory. This sight of glory is going to reveal more and more the Father and the love that the Father has. So what does Jesus want want us to see? He wants us to see his glory. Now, what does that mean? We talked a bit about it last week, but I know this isn't straightforward, and I know how many of you memorized my sermon from last week. Shame on you. God's, Jesus' glory is his great, that was a joke for the visitors. Jesus' glory is his greatness. Uh, it, it's what makes people stop when they see him and say, wow. It's, it's sort of the, I, I don't mean to use this word because it sounds so childish, but the sparkle of his deity, his greatness. That's what his glory is. His incomprehensible worth. Unmatched beauty, his dignity, his power. What makes him, him. What makes him stand out and makes everyone stop in their tracks. This is what his glory is. But what might be most difficult about Jesus' prayer here is not that he wants us to see his glory. is that he says this glory was given to him when? When on the timeline in, in, in human history was this glory given to him? Look at the passage. What does it say? Before the foundation of the world, this glory was given to Jesus. And now he wants to show this glory to his people. Jesus is showing a timeline, sort of a glimpse of within the mind of God to some sense. And there's certainly some mystery to how these things work out and how they relate to time. But by using this phrase, before the foundation of the world, without question, Jesus is saying, something was given to me before the world was created. And he's hinting to us or showing to us that God had a plan. And his plan that he ordained before he even created the world, that he planned was his son, the second person of the triune God, would come to earth and become a true human and be fully God and at the same time fully man. This was the plan before the world was even made, that Jesus would be the redeemer of God's people, that he would also be this mediator of God's glory. Before the world was created, the father said to his son, this is what, this is the, this is what I want you to do. I am going to give you this glory where you are going to reveal our greatness and make it so visible to these wonderful creatures that we have made. And this is the, this is the task that God gives to this, that God the Father gives to God the Son in eternity past. And Jesus says, this is my glory, and now I want to show it to them. And I want to reveal to them your very name, your very character. That's what verse 25 and 26 all, are all about. Listen, I know it's not easy to wrap your mind around this, but hang in there with me. Jesus is saying that he has come to take this glory that exists from eternity past between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and he has, he has been given the assignment to bear that glory in human form so that we could see. Theologians call this, the, the what, what Jesus is hinting at here, the beatific vision, that we could get a full glimpse of who God is through the God-man, Jesus. It's the way in which often Christians have talked about the ending of time when all things are wrapped up, when we've lost all of our our, we no longer fight with sin, when we're brought into glory. We will get this glimpse of God's glory in the face of Jesus and we will be forever changed, forever transformed. It's the reason God created in some senses. It's the reason he redeemed a people. It's the reason he is going to bring in a new creation. That the glory of Christ that we might behold it That's where everything's headed, that we might see it. Listen to 1 John 3, 2. In some ways, John writes letters after this gospel, in some ways a commentary on his reflection of Jesus. Listen to what he says. Beloved, we are children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. This vision of Jesus is a transformative vision maybe I'll illustrate it this way remember god's people in the time of, fan, of famine they get called down to egypt to go find food and as they're in egypt to go gather food to save their starving people they're called into the house of pharaoh into the all the glories of egypt the palaces of egypt they're brought forward and they get to come into the very chambers of the right hand man of all the glory of egypt and and to him they get to see through him they get to see the wisdom Of Egypt, The glories of Egypt. And how does the story go at the end of Genesis as they come to get this food? When they see the glories of Egypt, what do they see? They see the face of their brother, who was the right-hand man of the glory of Egypt. So also, this is what this is all about. We will see God's glory, and it will be like seeing the face of a brother at the exact same time. This was God's plan from the very beginning. His son, the second person of the Trinity, his, the plan was he would reveal God's glory to human flesh. He would make known God's name and God's glory to his people. And what this means is that where we're headed at the end of time, when we make it into heaven and we're part of the new creation, however it might look like, that what uh, the ultimate goal of the ending is not life unending, with no fear of death, as great as that will be, and I cannot wait for that day where we don't have to hear about cancer diagnoses. We don't have to wonder what's wrong medically with somebody. That is certainly going to be one of our great joys, but it's not our greatest. The end of time, their great joy won't be a reunion with our loved ones and a union with uh, Christians from all around the world and all around history, as great as that will be. And at the end of time, our greatest joy won't be finding peace, both no more wars in the world, but also peace internally, no more internal corruption and battling sin. This will be good, and it will be wonderful, and we will rejoice, but the ultimate goal is that we would clearly get a glimpse of the glory of God in the face of Christ, and in seeing his glory be changed by it. We know how this works. Advertisers know when you see something, you want to be like it. You're transformed, right? That's why Budweiser never has some drunk, overweight guy with his pants unbuttoned drinking his fourth beer, because no one would go to the store and buy it, right? Right? They have some beautiful, skinny man and woman clinking glasses together showing how exciting they are. We want to be like them, and so they know that. This is what God knows. When you get a glimpse of this glory, which is greater than your mind can currently comprehend, you will be utterly transformed. All of your desires will be upended and changed, and you will become a new person. But, you see, we can't see it in our current state, and this is the problem of the Bible. We can get glimpses of it, but we can't behold it fully. We are like the person who continues to read in dim light. Eventually our eyesight grows so dim and we can't see God for who he is. Jesus has come to take the dull sight that we have. He's come to change and, and, and fix these things. Give us some kind of spiritual LASIK, I guess you could say. But to make us capable to see God's glory again. We'll never be worthy to see God's glory. Ever. We'll never, ever be worthy to see God's glory. But he has come to make us qualified and capable to see God's glory again. We'll never be able to say we deserve to see it. But our problem is deeper than just the fact that sin makes it hard for us to see. Our sight has grown dim. We have another problem in our very nature. We're finite. We're, uh, we're material. And God is infinite. And he's immaterial. Our minds can't even comprehend what it means for something to be an immaterial being. We kind of lack the receptors to process that and to ever see it. And in some senses, this is important because, you know, I'm no expert on eyesight, and there's a couple of eye doctors here, so I tremble to speak about your expertise. But all of our sight is kind of mediated already. We never really directly see one another, right? There's sort of organic biological receptors that that, that are at play within our heads, that we see light bouncing off something else. And this reflection of light enters into my retina and it sort of sends a signal through my optic nerve and then my brain has to interpret that. There's always some kind of mediation between me and you as I see you and you see me. And it's all the more greater when we think of trying to see the immaterial God who's infinite, who has no end. Jesus is saying this, I have come so that you might have a direct line of sight mediated through me. Of the glory of god and so be transformed by it this was my purpose for the infinite to make himself known to the finite through the mediator and throughout all of eternity you have to hear me clearly we will never see god without christ we will always see god through our mediator the one who takes and translates this immaterial glory of god translates it into our categories into our terms so that we can see and behold God for who he fully is. He will give us sight, and when we see him, it will be like seeing our elder brother, and this will be a moment of eternal bliss. All desires, all corruption undone, at the very sight of the fullness of the glory of God in Christ. A deep satisfaction, a happiness never experienced will come. The second theologian, Irenaeus, said this, through his transcendent love, our Lord Jesus Christ became what we are, that he might make us to be what he is. It's not long after Jesus prays this prayer, though, that what happens, and I'll wrap it up with this. I know this has been somewhat heady, and some of you guys, this stuff is coming into your brain like a Dungeons and Dragons lecture, and you're like, what is going on? See God's glory, receptors, you lost me. This is important, though. This is where all of creation is headed, It's this chance to see God's glory. But not long after he prays this prayer, the wheels of heaven begin turning, and Jesus, and the Father says, I'm going to answer this prayer, and I'm going to answer it right now. And he begins to reveal more and more the glory of God in the face of Christ. And where does it lead Christ? To this trial. To this mockery. To this pedestal. A cross. Where the glory of God is most clearly put on display for the watching world to see. Because you see, the glory of God was revealed in glimpses in the incarnation. And those glimpses get more and more clear as we head to the cross. And it's on the cross it's on the cross that God's glory comes into a, a distinct sharpness that our brains can't fully comprehend. There's a glorious brightness that starts to protrude from this cross because we see exactly what our God is like. What makes our God our God? Who is like our God? Throughout all eternity past, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have lived in loving service, self-sacrificial service, we could say, one to another, constantly Father, Son, Holy Spirit, constantly in eternity past, and it's at the cross that we finally say, aha, this is the glory of God. This is true strength, laying aside your strength for the sake of another. This is true beauty, using your beauty for the good of another. It's at the cross we see this is what our God is like, the one who has all the glory, the one who could speak and create cosmos and is willing to enter into the story and add self-sacrificial love lay down his life. It's at the cross. We see the fullness. We see exactly what our God is like. It's only a glimpse. Our eyes still can't fully take it. Throughout all eternity, we're going to see it. We're going to see it clearly, and if you could just see it now, you would never be the same. Sisters and brothers, do you see it? This is our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, You'll always understand them through this cross. They make creation out of an overflow of their eternal love, the love of the Father to the Son, the love of the Son to the Spirit, and back around. And out of an overflow of that love, a desire for others to experience that love, participate in that love, they create this world. And though we as a race have participated in cosmic treason and constant rebellion, though we have lived, rather than living a life of self-sacrificial love, we've demanded our own rights made this world all about us, despite this rejection of their love, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit see from heaven the gift that God had given to Jesus before the foundation of the world, this glory. He would be the Redeemer. He would be the Mediator. He would be the one through which you would see the infinite and eternal, unchangeable glory of God, and you would see it as you see the face of a brother. This is the deep things of God, but they belong to us, church. Our God's love for us is unfathomable. It's undeserved. But who is like our God, who reveals his glory on a cross? Friends, if you don't know Jesus Christ, and if some of what has been said has gone over your head or it feels somewhat confusing, there is no God like the God found in the scripture, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there is no greater purpose than than can be found in the whole universe than the purpose that is found in self-sacrificial love because at the cross, at the cross, we see our God sacrificing for us. And this transforms everything about what it means to be human in this world. If you don't know him, can I ask you to look on that cross and trust him today. Let me pray. Our Father, who is like you? Who is like you? You can make your glory known in bolts of lightning and flashes of, th- of, of stars falling from the sky. You can make your glory known in new creations that would dazzle us. You could show off your glory in so many ways with all your wealth and all your prestige and all your power. And how do you show off your glory? You show off just how great you are by going to a cross and giving your very life out of love for the good of others. This is who you are. Father, would this news of the gospel transform us and might we today ever be seeing this vision of the cross so that all these things calling for our attention in life, job promotions, feeling like we're a failure, disappointing parents, frustrations of life, frustrations of injustice, these these images that are just so bright and they call for our attention and they tell us to to, to to, to live all of life under the shadow. Would we see the cross and would we see it clearly? And in seeing the cross, would you give us just a small peek at your glory? And in seeing your glory, would you make us into your people who follow in the family footsteps of self-sacrificial love for whoever you might put in our path this week. Answer the prayer of your son, we ask in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristChurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristChurchToronto.ca